All right, welcome back to Art Holes. My name is Michael Anthony, and this is the podcast about art and art history with someone who has absolutely no background in either topic. I hope everybody's doing well, and before we get back into our Caravaggio story, I just have a few housekeeping items. The first is there's an additional main source for the series that I had to pick up. It's called Love for Sale, A World History of Prostitution by Niles Johan Ringdahl. And it's kind of hard to hide the ball on that one, so I guess a bit of a spoiler alert, we're going to be talking quite a bit about sex work in this series, including a bunch of stuff about pimps. And the other item is not going to make me sound like a fully formed adult man, but whatever. And in retrospect, as I'm about to say it, it's a weird thing to talk about right after bringing up pimps. But I promised my mom that I would apologize to everyone, and this is legit, I really didn't consider this. At the end of episode 8 of Jackson Pollock, if you were driving while listening to that, I am really sorry, I didn't realize how jarring that might be. My mom actually listens to the show, and she was driving during that part, and she said it was, quote, unsettling. I still think I would have done the exact same thing, and maybe would have leaned in a little more had I been aware at the time, so I'm not exactly sure what that says about me. But regardless, we're here now, and there's nothing I can do about it, even if I wanted to, because I don't know how to go back and change anything. So, now that that's out of the way, it's time to get back into our story. When we last left Caravaggio, he was wandering Italy after being chased out of Milan for maybe something to do with a sex worker, some sort of gentleman who may be a tough guy, a possible slashing of a face that involved a sex worker, and a police officer that was killed. Maybe. If you break down that passage from Mancini's manuscript, it's not hard to reconstruct what might have happened more broadly. Occam's razor at play, uh, two men got into a fight over a sex worker, one guy was the aggressor and the other was just being a gentleman, which I'm sure was skewed based on who told the story. The fight escalated, someone was slashed with a knife, a police officer got involved, and then the officer was killed. And that's if the story is even true, and we're not in the best position with enough corollary evidence to believe or disbelieve, at least not right now anyway. We just don't know enough about our boy yet, so let's circle back on this issue at the end when we have a more complete picture. But right now Caravaggio's on the lam. He's sort of educated as an artist, and he's looking to make a living and a name for himself. And the big question is, where do you go from here? You've lived your life in a city and surrounding duchy that was dominated by the Captain America of the Counter-Reformation. And it's also a city that was known as much for its seedy underground dealings and violent young single men and prolific sex work as it was for Jesus. If you're Caravaggio and you have no interest in letting your foot off the gas, and you want to make a name for yourself as an artist, and especially within the organization that runs a huge majority of Europe, there is only one place for you to go now. You need to go to Rome. Which is exactly where Caravaggio turns up next. Rome was a city that had gone through drastic transformations. Uh, 1592 Rome was nothing like 1492 Rome, let alone 492 Rome. It had an interesting last few centuries. After the Papal States were created, Rome grew into its own as a secular and religious power. And as the Church and Rome got more powerful and rich, there was epic amounts of corruption, murder, destroying the boundary between itself and secular Europe. It's everything we talked about in Episode 1. Through the 1400s, as the Renaissance grew and there was that renewed interest in Greek and Roman antiquity, artists flooded Rome because of its obvious connection to antiquity and because of the current connection to the Catholic powers. It was the perfect Renaissance soup. And you know this story, we are right back in the middle of the church's plenary indulgence nose candy phase. Cocaine's a hell of a drug. <laughs> 
As the influence of the secular powers grew within Europe and the church became more dependent on the rich families and dynasties, power had begun to shift out of Italy and Rome and into the Holy Roman Empire. So when Martin Luther kicked off the Reformation and split the church, the secular powers jumped at the chance to use the turmoil to further consolidate power and take back influence in Europe from the church. By the 1520s, the church knows it's in trouble. Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire, who was Philip II of Spain's father, he was an absolute force within Europe. And the Pope at the time, Pope Clement VII, he was worried Charles V was muscling in and trying to overtake the church. So Pope Clement VII allies himself with King Francis of France, and they form the League of Cognac, which included the Sforzas of Milan and a bunch of other people. This is kind of like an intra-Europe Holy League type situation, and it's one of the multitude of wars in European history. In 1527, there was a battle between the Holy Roman Empire and the League of Cognac. In this battle, the Holy Roman Empire's imperial army had around 34,000 soldiers, mostly German mercenaries and Spanish troops, and being mercenaries, those troops expected to be paid. There's a bit of a complication with that assumption, though, and that's because Charles V was always overextended financially, and he couldn't afford to pay the troops when the battle was over. When the imperial troops found that out, they mutinied and began to sack and loot towns and villages all over northern Italy. When there was no more shit to steal and food to eat, the imperial troops started to head to Rome to kill two birds with one stone. Their thought process was they could get the wealth that they thought they deserved after winning the battle and getting stiffed by Charles V, and they could also drive a stake into the heart of the Catholic Church on behalf of Lutheranism. Martin Luther did not support this plan at all, and it was like, don't help, please don't help. But the troops did it anyway. When the imperial soldiers reached Rome, the city that became the epicenter of the Renaissance, a melting pot for all of Europe and home to some of the most beautiful, artistic, and intellectually forward-thinking things, it was, to put it mildly, absolutely fucked up. Before the 1527 sack, there was roughly 55,000 people that lived in Rome. The following year, after the butchering and mass exodus of people, there was only about 10,000. And as an extra kick to the groin, as soon as the occupation of Rome was over, the plague came through and annihilated a bunch more of the population. There was functionally no economy after this, and the church had to temporarily move its power center, and even the colonas in the area abandoned Rome. It was nearly a dead city. I could have done an entire three episodes on the sack of Rome. This is one of the most consequential events in European history, and there are insane stories. Famous sculptor and future art hole subject Benvenuto Cellini was involved, and he assassinated someone. And the sacrifice of nearly 190 Swiss soldiers in protection of the Pope is why the Pope's private security force is called the Swiss Guard and is still staffed with Swiss Catholic soldiers today. After eight months of pillaging, destruction, the plague, and desertion, the history of what made Rome what it was was basically gone. It was a city almost in ruins. The church also took a major hit to its power here, and this severely weakened the organization in the eyes of the rest of Europe. And that power shift keeps up as the independent kingdoms of France and Spain evolved, and it ends up being why the Spanish wind up dominating the region for so long. For years after the attack, Rome was an absolute shithole of a city, and none of the popes knew how to handle it and govern it as a city as well as the center of Catholicism. Pope Paul IV, who was considered by some historians as being the biggest asshole in the 16th century, and I'm paraphrasing there, uh, he was way too harsh and ended up forcing Jewish people to wear these weird yellow hats and force them to live in the ghetto, so I wasn't paraphrasing that much. Pope Julius III, on the other hand, was a little more hands-off with the process, but he was kind of busy with the Innocenzo scandal. 
And that would be when Julius III decided to take a young boy named Innocenzo off the streets and employed him to take care of his monkey. And I don't mean that as a euphemism, Innocenzo was literally the keeper of the monkey. And of course, Julius III was also having sex with young Innocenzo, which is not a euphemism. The Pope then had his brother adopt Innocenzo and made the youngster a cardinal nephew, hyphenated words, cardinal nephew, so there would be pretext to keep him in Rome. And this is exactly how Carlo Borromeo became a cardinal, as a cardinal nephew, minus the sex and the monkey part. Cardinal nephews were a real thing, and they were a real problem, and that's actually how we got the word nepotism, the root word translates to nephew. Julius III continued his assertion of power and influence over Innocenzo until his death, and Innocenzo continued his own illustrious career as a cardinal until being banished for raping two women and murdering two men. These two stories, besides being a completely unnecessary dragging of the church through the mud to prove my point, illustrates how chaos, especially the self-created chaos, prevented a lot of progress within the city of Rome as a community. There was just too much shit going on. It wasn't until the 1580s that the church realized it needed to return Rome as a city to the greatness it always claimed, the city that was also called Caput Mundi, which is Latin for capital of the world. So the church begins pumping money into the city with new construction and infrastructure, and it's building this new Rome as quickly as possible to reestablish itself and fend off the vultures of the kingdoms of France and Spain. Obviously, the church is going to concentrate first on its own interests and build its own beautiful churches and basilicas. And because the powerful families wanted to maintain their influence, there were enormous piazzas constructed and refurbished and rebuilt for the Colonnas and the Medicis. From what I understand, the theory is that if you dilute the development of a city over too large of an area, it'll never take hold. But if you focus on really nice areas first, over time you'll get these concentric circles of prosperity that evolve over time from these focal points of wealth. But it's not the best form of urban planning, especially in the short term, because what it did was created a city layout where they had gorgeous, concentrated areas of religious structures and beautiful homes and villas, and then right next door are neighborhoods of absolute squalor and lawlessness. But for Caravaggio, who maybe killed a cop and did God knows what else, and spent his formative years bridging between a 16th century criminal underground and the wealthy church art patrons, they've basically tailor-made this guy's dream city. This is gasoline in the fire of somebody who was already coming out hot, right from the gate. When Caravaggio arrived at the Porta del Popolo, which was the city's northern-facing gate, he was arriving at the same gate that a lot of people came through recently and continuously. This was now a city of immigrants from all over Italy and Europe, and they were there to work all the construction jobs and create all the new art that the church is going to need for all the new cathedrals and giant homes. Once Caravaggio entered the city in 1592, he made his way to the artist quarter, where he's planning on living and working. The artist quarter was a two-square-mile area right after the Piazza del Popolo, one of the main squares of Rome, and it was a series of narrow streets and alleys that bordered the Medici family ambassador's residence in the city. And it was an absolutely disgusting and violent place to live. There were a lot of artists that migrated to Rome and compete for the church's art patronage. Of the roughly 100,000 people that are now living in Rome in 1592, a significant number of them were single men, just like in Milan. About 2,000 of them were artists, and most of them were absolute assholes. The artists that arrived from all over Europe often traveled there in groups based on their nationality and continued to associate in those groups while living in Rome. 
At this point, Spain and France are either in open warfare or they're about to be in open warfare, so they definitely hate each other, and everyone else is generally really racist and hates each other for one reason or another. The Germans in Rome were considered, quote, crude, the Flemish were considered to be raging drunks, uh, the French were brutal thugs wrapped in fake sophistication, and everyone agreed on at least one thing, that the Italians were prone to, quote, the art of epicurizing, the art of whoring, the art of poisoning, and the art of sodometry. I don't care how many Dago, Guinea, what greaseball goombas come out of the woodwork. There were constantly fights breaking out in the artist district, and people carried short-handled daggers called pugnellos, and they would often stab and slash each other during those fights. And since there were so many young, single men in the city, there were insane numbers of sex workers. Even in Counter-Reformation Rome, sex work was so important and so impossible to completely stamp out that the church was forced to give sex workers their own enclosed area called the Ortaccio di Ripetta, which meant the evil garden. But at night, they all made their way to the Piazza di Popolo and the artist quarter, and sex workers will play a spectacular role in this story. Soon after Caravaggio arrived in Rome, he stayed and worked for an artist named Lorenzo Siciliano. Siciliano's shop was more of a mass marketplace that painted busts of figures in history like Cicero and Thomas Aquinas that everyone could buy. It was like kitschy art. It was while working at Siciliano's that Caravaggio would meet another young painter who was also working there that would become a lifelong friend, Mario Minitti. It's me, Mario! Mario was in Rome after being forced to flee Syracuse because of God knows what, and this tended to happen a lot. Back then, if you did something wrong, you could just leave the place until shit cooled down or you had someone powerful who would protect you if you went back and help you get a papal pardon. So I'm sure Caravaggio and Mario Minitti bonded over their inability to go home because of murky crimes, but they also bonded over their hatred of working for Siciliano. They knew he was a hack, and they were both ambitious and arrogant, and they would talk about both of their desires for bigger and better things. Caravaggio didn't last too long at that job, and pretty soon after, he was either fired or quit. With absolutely nowhere to go and no plan, he eventually found a landing spot at the house of a priest named Pandolfo Pucci, who was connected to the Colonna family. Moments like these are early glimpses of Costanza Colonna and her relationship softening a lot of falls and a lot of missteps by Caravaggio. Pucci agreed to let Caravaggio stay with him and work on his art in exchange for doing chores around the house. And Pucci wasn't interested in spending too much money on supporting Caravaggio, so the only food he provided was salad. It was salad for breakfast, salad for lunch, and salad for dinner, all the time. Caravaggio was resigned to the fact that he had no other options at the moment and started calling Pucci, quote, Monsignor Salad. For someone who has incredibly lofty goals, this was not an ideal situation. There's only one painting that survived from this early time, and it can only likely be attributed to Caravaggio. It's not confirmed. Everything else has been lost. It's a painting called Boy Peeling a Fruit, and for someone in his early 20s with dreams of becoming the next Michelangelo, it's not exciting. The face of the boy is kind of dopey and expressionless, and there's no sign of Caravaggio's impending brilliance, either in the intellectual underpinnings of his art or just in pure technique. For whatever arrogance and ambition Caravaggio has, he is not showing it in his work yet. He doesn't last long with Monsignor Salad, and eventually finds a new studio to live and work which was much more respectable. This was a big promotion. In the middle of 1593, Caravaggio starts working for Giuseppe Cesari, who was one of the more respected artists in Rome at this point. Giuseppe Cesari was only three years older than Caravaggio, but he already had consistent patronage from powerful cardinals in Rome. 
He was one of the painters that the church could consistently rely on to paint large, counter-Reformation-approved things and deliver it on time and not do anything too stupid along the way. His style was a mix of high renaissance and mannerism, so he'll get the job done, but it's probably not going to be anything that people haven't seen before. His studio was run by his brother and workshop manager, Bernardino Cesari, who recently returned from Rome, having fled the city for a year after being sentenced to death for associating with bandits. One of the influential cardinals who patronized the Cesari shop, he had to step in and secure a papal pardon for Bernardino. And it's not like Bernardino got a pardon because he wasn't an asshole or deserved one, but the cardinal and the rest of the church, they needed art, and they couldn't let bandits and a death sentence get in the way of that. And this is definitely a lesson that Caravaggio picked up early on. If a cardinal needs you for something, it makes for a great emergency contact when shit goes south. And that pardon was necessary to keep the Cesari shop going, and they were extremely busy in receiving commissions from all over Rome. Caravaggio's job for Cesari was to paint, quote, flowers and fruit. He was the still life guy. Still life renderings and art in some form or another has been around since basically cave paintings, but it was popularized around this time in the form that we now know it by the Dutch and the Flemish. I didn't even know where Bruges fucking was. It's in Belgium. Still life was an opportunity for artists to show their skill in capturing minute details of everyday life and items, and a way to show their ability to paint colors and textures. It was also a way for people to show off their wealth and prosperity. 99% of people alive at this time had awful diets of whatever mutton and grain they could find to consume, so being able to obtain a giant collection of fruits and vegetables to paint was an almost unattainable situation. For the vast majority of people alive back then, looking at a still-life painting of a fully-dressed dinner with flower arrangements was mind-boggling. A lot of Dutch and Flemish still-life painters came through Milan, so Caravaggio probably would have shown more refined skill at still-life than the other assistants at the shop, and that's maybe why he was given the job. It was also a job that Caravaggio absolutely hated, and probably hated his bosses for giving him. There was no glory in painting fruit, and he would have seen it as insulting that the Cesares would make the country bumpkin from the outskirts of Milan paint all the produce. None of Caravaggio's still-life paintings from this time survived, but there are two paintings that I'm stoked to talk about that did survive and involve fruit. And they also give us the first glimpses of Caravaggio's art and style that'll make him so historically important, but also so in demand when he was alive. This is not a story about somebody who wasn't appreciated until well after his death. The first painting is called Boy with a Basket of Fruit, and it actually has a special connection to the show. It's the painting that's the basis for the show image, only with my face in it. And I had no idea what that painting was. I just used some app and it gave no information, but I was delighted to learn the details. Caravaggio painted Boy with a Basket of Fruit around 1593 to 1594 while at the Cesari shop, and it's an exploration of metaphor, plausible deniability, and the counter-reformation equivalent of porn. Or, or maybe it's just a boy with a basket of fruit and get your mind out of the gutter and closer to Jesus. We don't know. Who are we to say otherwise? The other thing that happened that was evident in this painting was during the period of time between Siciliano's and Monsignor's salads and that first maybe attributable painting, Caravaggio's technical skill got much better. This is the first opportunity we have to see a Caravaggio depiction of a person since he started painting still life at the Cesari Brothers studio. And painting people wasn't a cheap process and models could be expensive, so a lot of Caravaggio's paintings, especially early on, were of people he knew. 
And the model for this painting is none other than his friend from working at Siciliano's, Mario Minitti. It's me, Mario! At first glance, this is just a regular genre painting. And a genre painting is a depiction of a scene from regular life and regular people doing regular things. We're actually going to explore this a little more towards the end of the episode. This one is just a scene of a boy holding a basket of fruit. But the look on Mario's face is a little... It's a little suggestive. He's got some bedroom eyes, especially for people's sensibilities not only in the late 16th century, but counter-reformation Rome. And Mario's skin is incredibly smooth, and if you look at the slight flushing of his cheeks, he's got a little blush to him. He's flushed, but he doesn't look like he was just working the fields. Then you can scan down a bit further, and his shirt is playfully off his shoulder. Maybe he's about to pull it up and cover himself. Maybe he's not. We don't know. And the shoulder and collarbone that's exposed, it's proportionately larger and more detailed, and it's sort of a focal point of the painting. It's a very defined and pronounced aspect, as if Caravaggio was saying, isn't Mario delightful? Then there's the basket of fruit, which doesn't just contain fruit, it is absolutely exploding with fruit. And since day one of the church, with the whole Eve and the Garden of Eden thing and eating the apple, fruit has been a metaphor for temptation. And being able to accurately and subtly paint fruit can be a tool for all kinds of other metaphors. Rotten fruit can be a statement on death and sadness, while ripe fruit can be a metaphor for spring and rebirth and hope. And Caravaggio's fruit here is straight up luscious. The fruit is so plump and ripe that a pomegranate and figs are bursting, and there's a promise that if you take a bite of any of the fruit, juices will go everywhere. You know, I can uh, eat a peach for hours. Boy with a Basket of Fruit is either just a painting of boy holding fruit, or it's as close to counter-reformation porn that you can get without being set on fire. You can't just paint your buddy Mario mid-coitus or right after, but Caravaggio found the boundary of plausible deniability of sexual and profane content, and he didn't cross it. But if your brain wanted to go there, he gave you a roadmap. The second painting that survived from around this time shows his ability to capture a different side of the human experience. When he first got to the Cesari shop, evidence suggested that the brothers felt bad for Caravaggio, and they noted how shoddy his clothes were, and that he was just a raggedy-ass individual. But then he does something while working there, and we don't know what it is, but it absolutely scares the shit out of Giuseppe Cesari. Quote, Giuseppe sees and is petrified, and in order to distract him, makes him retreat and flee so he does not reappear. Unquote. My guess is that something got heated with a patron or co-worker, and Caravaggio's reaction was so over the top that everyone was like, oh, okay, this is not good. And for the rest of his time working at the shop, the brothers had to hide Caravaggio so nobody knew that he was working there. That initial pity that the Cesaris felt is starting to wear off, and he is wearing out his welcome. Then one day, Caravaggio gets kicked by a horse. <laughs> and if you're keeping track at home, yes, this is the second series in a row where somebody gets kicked by a horse. Caravaggio getting kicked by a horse presented a few problems. Obviously, getting kicked by a horse is as dangerous as it sounds, and he got messed up by that horse, and his legs started to get all swollen. But because nobody was allowed to know that he worked there, the brothers didn't call the surgeon. So Caravaggio had to call on his old boss, Siciliano, to bring him to the hospital, and he was laid up there for quite a bit. The Cesari brothers didn't visit Caravaggio at all while he was in the hospital, and it looks like they took the horse-kicking opportunity to be a natural break in their relationship. 
While he was in the hospital recovering from the horse kicking, Caravaggio kept painting, and one of the paintings that was likely completed in the hospital was not so much counter-reformation porn, but being able to capture humans not at their best, but still trying to be. The painting is called Self-Portrait as Bacchus, so this is Caravaggio as Bacchus, the Roman god of wine, fertility, winemaking, grape harvest, and religious ecstasy, which is like an altered state of mind brought on by expanded spiritual awareness. Or, collectively, in not 1590s speak, being red wine drunk, super turned on, and getting a little weird. The painting is also called Sick Bacchus because Caravaggio depicted himself as Bacchus while he was recovering from the horse kick, so he looks absolutely awful and he painted himself that way, flaws and all. The whole painting has a dingy feel to it. He looks sick and exhausted, but he's also giving you the shoulder. He's leaning into the viewer suggestively, holding on to his grapes, and he's also confidently trying to give you the Mario eyes, the... How you doing, eyes, and he's got these loose curls that look like he could just shake them at any moment. It looks like a cross between some creepy mouth breather, like a eh, eh, and just let your soul go. Just let it shine through. Just let your soul Caravaggio used these two paintings as a way to sell himself, not just as a still-life painter, but someone who could paint intellectually and provocatively. Just knowing who Bacchus was and being able to paint your own interpretation of the wine and fertility god was a selling point. It meant that you were educated enough to be able to understand and interpret history. It was the promise that his paintings wouldn't just be superficial, that they'd be dense and there'd be a lot to think about and discuss. When he gets out of the hospital, Caravaggio doesn't go back to the Cesaris. There are some notes that suggested that Giuseppe Cesari may have been holding Caravaggio back out of jealousy, or that could have just been Caravaggio's grandiosity speaking. Whether he officially quit or was fired, it doesn't matter. He's showing some signs of having a hard time staying employed and working with other people. Caravaggio was also developing a reputation as, quote, a satirical and proud man. At times he would speak badly of the painters of the past and also the present, no matter how distinguished they were, because he thought that he alone had surpassed all the other artists of his profession. The arrogance is already flowing out of this guy, and it's not helping that he has a new friend and sidekick named Prospero Orsi by his side. If Mario Minetti can be considered more of an intimate friend of Caravaggio, Prospero Orsi is more of the obnoxious hype man. He pushed Caravaggio to strike out on his own and live by himself, and he supported all of Caravaggio's more base instincts. It was around this time that Caravaggio painted Boy Bitten by a Lizard. This was a painting that showed Caravaggio's skill in painting still life and the complexities of capturing things like water in a vase, but it was also a complicated depiction of a person, and it was also sort of porny. The images of a boy reaching for ripe cherries and is reacting to having his finger bitten by a lizard that's unseen in the painting. That image also happens to be a metaphor for being careful who you have sex with, because having your finger bitten by a lizard was Italian street slang for injuring your penis. And by adding jasmine, which was a well-known symbol for desire back then, and having the boy's shirt casually off the shoulder again, Caravaggio gave the image a distinctly and nearly unassailable 16th century bedroom vibe and sexual connotation. The subject of the painting is debated. It's either Mario Minitti or a disguised self-portrait of Caravaggio, but either way, it's someone whose penis he's very concerned is injured. 
And when you look at the subject's face, it's incredibly expressive and real. He's painting fear and pain and anger. You don't really see that facial expression with historical painters like Raphael and Titian. Caravaggio was exploring realism within his art, realistic depictions of faces and emotions. The end result is a painting that's a morality tale that lines up with the counter-reformation ideals of not succumbing to temptations, but you also get to imagine the subject of the painting having sex. These three paintings, Boy Bitten by a Lizard, Boy with a Basket of Fruit, and Sick Bacchus, those are how Caravaggio was planning to sell himself moving forward. Having learned from the studios of Simone Petterzano, Giuseppe Cesari, the Renaissance and Mannerist painters, Caravaggio is announcing that his career will be nothing like theirs. He's not going to give you giant basilica frescoes, he's going to give you morality tales that you may just be able to masturbate to, and he's going to give you raw and gritty. And this is how he's starting out. It's a bold move for the time. Caravaggio is taking a big gamble. He's on his own right now. He has no patron. He just got kicked by a horse, and the resume he's dangling is a little aggressive. And this whole time, he's being the Caravaggio we didn't get to hang out with in Milan, and he's going to be even more so moving forward. The one who's out all night drinking and carousing, and he's getting acquainted with the non-religious side of Rome. His going-out crew at this point was Mario Manitti, Prospero Orsi, and an art dealer named Costantino Spada, who had a shop where Caravaggio and Manitti would both sell their art. And one day in, we're probably looking at somewhere between late 1594 and early 1595, Spada decided to set up a potential arrangement. It's a, a job interview. One of Spada's clients and buyers was a cardinal named Francesco Bourbon Maria Del Monte. Cardinal Del Monte was one of the more powerful cardinals in Rome, but he was also one of the more forgiving figures when it came to counter-reformation zeal. Carlo Borromeo was a hard-ass enforcer that everyone had to respect, but Cardinal Del Monte was more of just a fun guy to have around. Del Monte was born in Venice in 1549, unsurprisingly to an influential family. The artist Titian went to his baptism, that's the level that we're dealing with right now. His father was a military guy, but Del Monte was interested in law and science and the humanities, and he started his little boy career in the church in 1572, and he began working for a cardinal in the Sforza family. Then in a Game of Thronesian-style move, he switched teams and started working for a cardinal in the Medici family, which wasn't done often, but in this instance, it actually worked in his favor. The new cardinal that Del Monte started working for was named Ferdinando de' Medici, who was the youngest son of the Grand Duke and ruler of Florence and Tuscany, so this was kind of a big deal. Ferdinando was made a cardinal nephew at the age of 14, which is something that we would call child protective services for today. Del Monte became Ferdinando's assistant and worked for years as his personal secretary, confidant, and basically his lieutenant, his number two. Then somebody maybe poisoned Ferdinando's older brother and his wife, which meant the transfer of that Medici's branch of family power and estate was in jeopardy because you can't hold your own land and title as a cardinal nephew. So Ferdinando renounces his vows, goes back to be the Grand Duke, and takes Del Monte to help him rule. But it also meant that the Medici influence in Rome needed to be maintained, and if you're Ferdinando, who needs to delegate to make sure that the position gets filled in your best interest, who better to run your affairs than the guy who's seen you do it for so many years? Ferdinando de' Medici convinced the Pope to make Del Monte a cardinal, stationed in Rome. Problem solved. So Del Monte is now a cardinal in Rome. That's all it took. And Del Monte has a very eventful career in Rome. He doesn't just sit around and hang out. In the now outright hostilities between the two major powers in Europe, France and Spain, 
Ferdinando de' Medici and Tuscany backed France. And that allegiance becomes tighter when Ferdinando's niece Marie marries Henri IV, then King of France, and she became the queen. Henri IV was a Protestant, and it was one of the reasons why Catholic Spain and France didn't get along too well. So the big get now, the goal of the church in France and the Medicis, is to convince Henri IV to convert from Protestantism to Catholicism. A conversion would recapture France from the Protestants in the sense of the Greater Reformation War, but it would also increase the Medicis' influence in France and in Rome, and it would allow for greater allegiances against Spain as a growing geopolitical power. One of the big power players in this grand plan to convert Henri IV was Cardinal Del Monte, because he was a great negotiator, and he's great at parties, and everybody loves him. Nobody wants to convert to a church unless there's a couple cool people to hang out with. And in 1593, partially due to Cardinal Del Monte's negotiation, Henri IV converts to Catholicism. This conversion put a reset on the church's power in Europe, and it put them in a stronger position again, and it also established France as a credible threat to Spain moving forward as a secular power. Now a lot of powerful people are in Del Monte's debt, and he's one of the more powerful cardinals in Rome, though mostly with the Medicis and the French contingent. The Spanish hate him, but we'll get to that. Of all the cardinals in Rome that you'd want to make friends with as an artist, he is in the top tier. In about a year after all this conversion drama, Caravaggio, who likes to paint dick-biting lizard metaphors and maybe a boy who's secretly getting blown while holding a basket of fruit, he's got a job interview with this guy. It's actually not that insane of a thought, though. The art shop owner Spada was sort of onto something here. You have this raw artist in Caravaggio who's clearly an intellectual and he's willing to try new things and not toe the line of the last few generations of great artists, and he appears to give zero fucks. This is the counter-reformation, and he's a complete degenerate with a great sense of humor who's willing to paint himself as a creepy drunk sex god after getting kicked by a horse. And then you've got a powerful Cardinal in Del Monte who loved the arts since childhood and he was quick-witted and had a king-converting personality. He also wasn't above spending nights drinking and losing a bunch of money gambling at the Farnese Palace with a cardinal nephew named Pietro Aldobrandini, and the both of them finished off the evening together with two courtesans spending time, quote, listening to music. So maybe this guy, maybe he would be the one to be in the best position to possibly identify the next Michelangelo, to be known as the cardinal who ushered in a distinct movement in art in whatever this new iteration of the church, this new Rome, and this new post-empire period in Europe was becoming. And it's not like we know for sure that Caravaggio killed somebody in Milan. Why bring up old shit? That was like a whole other episode ago. This guy has skill and potential, and that matters more. This is going to work out great. Or, or it's going to be a complete disaster. There's not a real complex spectrum of outcomes here. There's no information on how this situation gets brokered, who agreed to what, or even if Del Monte was aware that he was about to be pitched to. In 1595, Del Monte ends up in a room with two Caravaggio paintings, paintings that were designed to secure patronage by the man who helped convert King Henri IV. This is an unbelievable opportunity to secure a counter-reformation powerful cardinal as a sponsor. He is pitching the upper echelons of the Catholic Church. This was the absolute best way for him to get rich and remembered for centuries. So this is very exciting. This is the big reveal. And the Bible is dense as shit. There are a ton of options and then choices within those options. Will Caravaggio paint something from the Old Testament or the New Testament? What statement does he want to make? What statement does he think the church wants to send millions of people on the nature of existence and God and the meaning of life itself? 
And what about Jesus? What if he goes for it and paints Jesus? What Jesus will it be? Will it be baby Jesus? How long would the Jesus's arms be? You wouldn't imagine that would be a consideration, but mannerism changed all that. You could have a baby Jesus with really long arms. And if he chooses to go with adult Jesus, will he pick preaching Jesus who leaves one set of footprints in the sand? Or will he go crucifixion Jesus and capture the final week? The agony and the ecstasy of the Son of God dying for our sins, and he's also God, and then there's also still a Holy Spirit in there somewhere. I like to think of Jesus like with giant eagle's wings yeah. and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band. And I'm in the front row, and I'm hammered drunk. Caravaggio didn't do any of that. He didn't paint anything from the Old Testament or the New Testament. Both paintings that made their way in front of Del Monte were genre paintings, which we touched on a bit earlier. Genre paintings being a depiction of ordinary people doing ordinary things. A lot of the times it's indoors, but it doesn't have to be. These are paintings of non-historical figures in everyday settings, and a lot of the times it's domestic scenes or scenes in market squares. Genre paintings aren't paintings of Jesus or the Apostles or Mary, or even on the secular side, some rich Colonna or John of Austria majestically riding a horse. We can't make it quick because my horse is getting tired. These are paintings of us, of humans, and it's us at our most human, doing any of the mundane things that all of us do. Cleaning, dancing, reading, grocery shopping, even doing laundry. And for a viewer, there's a lot you can do with the genre painting to get the most enjoyment out of it. It can be a conversation starter at a weird 1590s European party, or even just a kill time doing nothing. You can look at these genre paintings and just let your mind take over. You can create backstories for everyone who's in it, wonder what the people are thinking, where they're going next, and then you can talk about it with people and disagree and joke around. And this may not sound like an incredibly exciting way to spend time, but this is back when people didn't have shit to do and they had to use their imaginations all the time because not everyone could read. I saw some estimates that put literacy rates from back then around 12 to 30%, which is not good. So, okay, Caravaggio went with genre paintings. It's sort of a curveball, but let's go with it. We're here. Maybe it's a painting of a mother and child praying or a confessional scene. Something to connect all Catholics to the functionality of the church or the things that make them all the same. The first painting that Caravaggio created is of three men in a gambling den. There's a rich, impeccably dressed aristocrat and two con artists who are using various means of cheating at games to rob him of his money. It's called The Card Sharps, and it's a genre painting of fraud and crime. And not only is the painting of crime, there's a high density of fraud happening. There's an abandoned backgammon board, so you know whatever happened there went poorly, and now they're playing some sort of card game. The first con artist is young and quick-eyed, and he's pulling extra cards out of his belt. And the other con artist is ridiculously evil-looking, complete with a twisty evil mustache. And he's leaning over the dopey-looking rich aristocrat's cards, and there's implication of coordination between the two con artists. And that comically evil-looking guy, he also unstitched the fingertips of a glove, which was a technique con men used in order to slip a fingertip out and feel which cards were marked. This was an incredibly detailed painting from someone who was, in some way or another, highly educated on screwing people over when gambling. But when you look at the painting and get a sense of the tone, it doesn't have a foreboding feel to it. It's a dramatization of the event. Mustache guy is so obviously looking over the kid's shoulder that it can't be real. 
but it's also not not real. It's a depiction of something real, but it's removed enough that you can be less reflexively judgmental or upset about it. And there's also a class distinction issue that comes out here that makes the morality a little cloudier. That rich aristocrat who's getting screwed out of whatever money he has on his person, he's still going to go back to a gorgeous home with servants, and those two con men would never be able to attain that life. There wasn't an American dream in 1595 Rome. Those class structures were solidly set. So this painting, the card sharps, it could also be pitched as a message that too much greed could result in you being the victim of crime, or an analysis that allowing poverty to exist will result in crime. Or it is just a painting by a guy who spends his nights thriving in the seediest areas of the cities he's lived in and has a droll sense of humor, and it's just a painting of screwing over people who don't know how to hang on to their own money. The second painting that Caravaggio created was called The Gypsy Fortune Teller. The Romani people, who were referred to as gypsies by everyone until like 2013, were universally hated around this time. Quote, they are thieves by nature. They sell their own sons for food. They make deception from lines of the hand and earn their living by these amusing frauds. And wander through the world, erecting their tents outside of cities and fields and highways. Like beasts, they consider marriage to their own sisters legitimate, and the women steal chickens. Unquote. But that's not what this painting is. It's not some scheming, chicken-stealing monster. It's a scene of a beautiful Romani girl reading the palm of a young aristocrat who is absolutely falling for her every charm. And yes, there's the implication that she's maybe stealing a ring from his finger in addition to cheating him out of money for the nonsense palm reading, but you get a sense from the painting that the young aristocrat is willing to deal with that just for her attention. The fact that Caravaggio painted a Romani girl as anything other than a snarling monster is itself a statement. What these two paintings really boiled down to was they were dramatizations of all the urban legends that rich people told each other about what happens in the seedy parts of Rome. Caravaggio was humanizing crime. The viewer may hate and fear what the people in the paintings are doing, but you don't outright hate the people for doing it. You're forced to see them as people as well. Before these two paintings, nobody had done something like this before. Of course, there's been crime depicted in art before, but not like this. To impress Cardinal Del Monte and to try to make himself known to the church, Caravaggio created an entirely new subtype of genre painting that depicted crime and fraud, the lowlife genre. You want to see paintings of everyday people doing everyday things? Fine. Real life is shitty dudes with shitty mustaches cheating you out of your money. And it's also shitty women stealing your money too, but sometimes guys are too distracted trying to have sex with them to care. Real life is your grandparents giving their social security number out over the telephone to someone faking that they're you. Everyday people doing everyday things sometimes sucks. For me, this was the first moment where Caravaggio takes something that everybody thought they knew, like the genre painting, and he turns it into a thing that it really was, you just didn't realize it was that until he pointed it out to you. Cardinal Del Monte takes a look at these paintings, and then he looks over at Caravaggio, who's standing there just, eh, eh, just let And he's all messed up from getting kicked by that horse and God knows what else. And check out the painting of Sick Bacchus. I'll post all these at Art Holes Podcast. You can get a good visual. So Del Monte's looking at him. And then he looks back over at the paintings. 
And like all good leaders do when they identify even the rawest of talent, he thought to himself, this is my kind of asshole. I can work with this. And in the autumn of 1595, Cardinal Del Monte invited Caravaggio to live in his enormous Medici piazza there in Rome, the epicenter of the Catholic religion, and he would be Caravaggio's patron. Michelangelo Morisi de Caravaggio is about to be put on the shortlist to potentially usher in a new era of art and influence the Catholic Church, and he's still maybe a murderer, and he's only 24 years old. And we are just warming up. Don't forget, we have to go through a whole trial, and that has nothing to do with any of the stabbings that are on the way. Next episode, we're going to get to see how Caravaggio's art evolves and how he handles having the protection of the church and a little success. It's going to be fine. Before I get out of here, I just want to say thank you to everyone. Uh, I've had a spike in downloads over the last month or so, and I haven't done any real promotion for the show yet, partially because, honestly, I don't really know what this is yet. When people ask me to describe it, I don't really know what to say. I guess it's art and art history until my mind wanders while doing research, and then it's George Patton slapping people. So if you're listening now while I'm finding my legs, it's probably because word of mouth. So thanks to everyone who's been talking about the show. It's really been helping. Oh, and thank you for the Apple Podcast ratings and reviews that came in. You all are awesome. I really appreciate it. It really does help out the show quite a bit. Uh, So that's it. Take care, and I will talk to everybody soon.